Hi, this is Eric Radford, and you're listening to Level Playing Field. the podcast level playing field i'm your host randy boost this is my podcast where i talk to lgbtq sports personalities this episode is with olympic medalist eric radford eric and i talk about his starting out figure skating his music we talk a lot about the olympics and i do have to apologize that midway through this podcast you hear my dog barking we edited out most of his barking but we do end up a little bit left in the episode so i do apologize I hope you enjoy this interview with Eric. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Thanks for the use of your music too, by the way. Yeah, it sounded great. Thanks. So let's start out uh, simple. Let's start, where were you born? I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, uh, January 27th, 1985. And your parents' names? My mom is Val, and my dad is Rick. Do you have any siblings? I have an older brother named Richard. What's your earliest memory you have as a kid? One of my earliest memories is being small enough to take a bath in the sink in the bathroom. I remember being able to, like, sit on the edge and put my feet in and then actually be able to, like, sit in the little sink. So I must have been about three... Yeah, That's... pretty pretty far back. And I can also remember my uh, my first day of daycare. It must have been traumatizing because I remember my mom dropping me off and then leaving and me standing at the window, like with my hands against the glass, <laughs> being like, come back. For sports in your life, was it always just figure skating or were you ever interested in other sports, either watching, playing? When I was a kid, I, I played pretty much every sport. And I mean, that was one of the great things about where I grew up is that I had access to every sport. Like I used to uh, like curl outside of school. I used to cross country ski. Um, in school, I did like all the sports, track and field, volleyball, basketball, soccer. I played baseball in the summers. Uh, of course, figure skating. I also did gymnastics competitively. Yeah, I, I played a lot of different sports. Um, I was even in hockey when I was very, very young, like when I was still kind of learning to skate. Like mini mites type of a deal? Yeah. And um, Do you know when that was? Um, I think it was around when I was... I mean, I started skating when I was eight. And then I think I started skating kind of more and dropping some of my other uh, sports when I was around... 10 11 is that when you started to make it a almost like a career goal or i uh, i i don't know they kind of like happen at the same time like at the beginning it was always really fun and i used to be that little kid that was like i want to go to the olympics but i mean to seriously think that i could go to the olympics didn't really happen until like later on but um I did have like that kind of drive where I would watch the skaters on TV and then I would start, uh, I used to get this monthly magazine through Skate Canada, which is like our governing body like of figure skating Mm -hmm. in Canada. And um, they would talk about like the smaller regional competitions and 
they would like, you know, say, oh, like uh, the winner here did a triple sow cow or the winner here did a double axle. And I couldn't do those yet. And I was like, oh, like I want to be able to do what they're doing. What was um, what was your first jump you completed? Um, well, the very first one that you usually learn in skating is the waltz jump. Yeah. Um, but then it was like a big hurdle to be able to do like the flip jump and the let's jump. And then, of course, another big one is the axle. Right. But uh, right from the, the very beginning, I was always a big fan of the toe loop jump and the let's jump. You mentioned, you know, eventually becoming like your goal being to be in the Olympics. Mm -hmm. What was your earliest Olympic memory you had as a kid watching? So that's how I first started skating. I saw it on TV during the 1992 Olympics. And uh, of course, there was the Canadian Kurt Browning, who was one of my childhood heroes and idols. Um, but it was specifically American Nancy Kerrigan, like her routine that you're at the Olympics and something about like the music and the way she kind of like moved to the music. I was really entranced by that. And I can remember it very clearly watching that. And then like looking at my mom and being like, I want to learn to do that. And it was kind of because when I was, you know, that young, I was obsessed with flying and with planes and watching it on TV. It almost looked like magic, you know, it almost looked like they were flying when they would jump in the air. And um, so that was yeah, definitely so part smooth. of the attraction there. Yeah. When you started figure skating, then you get past the beginner skating lessons. You start moving in, you get a coach. I think when you started, they were still doing figures, right? Yeah, that's true. I have, so there's eight levels of figures and I have half of my first figure. So you used to have to test like the actual figures where you're making the circles and tracing the circles on the ice. And then the other half of the test was three turns. And I don't know what it was because I knew how to do a three turn, but I wasn't doing it properly. And they failed me on that first figure. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause I worked at an ice rink in the nineties. Oh, so, no way. Yeah. So I remember when the excitement for the young skaters, when they eliminated that as one of the requirements, and just they were very happy for the most part, it seemed. And you'd still have the occasional coach do it. Yeah. But it got dropped quickly. Oh, I, I mean, I hated it as a kid. I couldn't wait to do uh, free skate and even dance. You know, it was way more fun than going out and doing figures at that age. And it's kind of funny because now I look back and I'm like, oh, I should have done figures longer. Like, it just really teaches you how to glide across the ice. One thing that I, I have to say when I'm, I'm looking back at my early childhood skating memories, and I, I always forget to mention this, the very first uh, free skating test in Canada is your preliminary free skate. And I failed. Like, I was like nine years old and the judge failed me on my very, very first test. And I can remember like running into the bathroom and just, or the restroom and just crying my eyes out. And my mom be like, it's going to be okay. And I think it's kind of funny that I, <laughs> that was my very, very first, like, test in figure skating, and I miser uh, failed miserably and somehow managed to kind of <laughs> end my career a little better than it began. Oh, yeah, definitely. So you started out as a single skater? Yes. Um, I think, you know, most figure skaters, they do. We started out in, in single skating and, <clears throat> excuse me, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't really know that much about pair skating when I when I first uh, 
was exposed to figure skating. And that kind of came later on in. How does the conversation happen where you transitioned <clears throat> to, to pairs? Um, well, really, it was uh, by a coach. Uh, it was my coach, Paul Wirtz, in Montreal that, uh, you know, he was an actual pair coach, but also was a very strong singles coach and kind of saw me and, you know, saw that I was probably going to be taller. Um, at that point, I didn't have any triple jumps. And I think that he kind of saw that, you know, maybe I was going to be the type of boy that could make a strong pair skater. So I was really introduced to the idea through him. Okay. And when was this? That would have been in 1999. I, uh, I never really thought about trying to find a Paris partner until I, I listened to the Players Own podcast. Um, right. Where I, I forget what skater it was. Um, but she mentioned about the way you turn, the way you spin. Um, was it oh. hard to find a, a partner that, that fit? Because you started out, what was, who was your first partner? My first partner was Sarah Burke. Was it hard to find that first partner for you or was it? Um, for me, it wasn't that difficult because um, at that point, uh, my coach who kind of introduced me to Paris from, he moved from Montreal to Toronto, uh, to the Toronto cricket club, which is where, uh, Yuzuru and, you know, Brian, Brian Orser is coaching right now. And, uh, when I moved there, Sarah was already skating there and started taking lessons from Paul in singles. And it was Paul who kind of saw her and thought she could be a strong Paris girl and had me and thought I'd be a strong Paris boy. And uh, Sarah and I had very kind of similar skating styles and kind of um, similar bodies. Like we matched really well and very easily. So, you know, he kind of threw us together and I, I learned pairs with her. I'm sure that, that helped having the mutual, you guys both were learning at the same time. So made it maybe easier or was it harder to do? Um, well, we were both pretty strong single skaters. So it was, you know, it was pretty easy. There's specific moves in pairs that are always a little bit more like challenging to learn for, for both partners. I think like, uh, for example, the back outside desk barrel is really difficult and, and an odd feeling for the girl to learn. And then doing like the twist was always something that was more, you know, throwing up the girl, having her rotate and catching her. That was always like a bit of an awkward element to try and learn with each new partner that I had. But um, I mean, personality wise we were a perfect match we, it was always a ton of fun for us to like learn and try new things oh that's cool um so you're starting out to do pair skating but i want to back up a little bit and actually go back to music um when did you start music so i started music the same year that i started skating and i was eight years old uh, my brother was finishing his last year of elementary school and he came back and he had to play when the saints go marching in and we had a little keyboard and I kind of snuck into his room one, one day and I was just kind of fiddling around on the keyboard and I kind of figured out just by ear how to play when the saints go marching in. And I, I showed my mom and she was like, how did you learn that? And I was like, well, I just taught myself and she was like, oh, well, maybe you need to start taking piano lessons. And I I started that year, and I had just started that fall as well, uh, figure skating. 
it's interesting because the the path between music and figure skating both take a lot of time to get better. I know yes. figure skaters, you probably had a lot of early mornings. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, now that I'm talking about this, I think that when I was watching skating on TV in that initial moment, the music was probably a big part of it. It's one of the only sports that is, you know, done with music or to music. But I mean, it's, you know, I guess as a kid, if you love playing the sport and I loved being at the piano, it, it wasn't really difficult. I was one of those kids. My mom never had to tell me that, okay, like you need to go sit at the piano for an hour. Like I just did it on my own because I loved it so much. And it was the same with skating. In the beginning, we only skated three days a week. And I would always ask like if there was a, a, a way that I could go and skate every single day, but there just wasn't ice. But uh, I remember some very early mornings, of course, early mornings as I got older. Um, I remember being up at 5 a.m. every morning when I was uh, like in grade nine, around when I was like 13. Um, and then even in those early days, Saturday mornings, we'd be on the ice around like 6.30 or 7 o'clock. Okay, yeah, I, as a worker of a rink, I definitely remember the early morning figure skating group coming in. Yeah, definitely. Um, the music constantly playing over and over again. <laughs> but it sounds like the music, being able to hear music and and just it sort of flowed in you. So it sort of helps with the figure skating as well, I'd imagine. They sort of, like you said, they went hand in hand and. Yeah, I mean, I feel so fortunate that my, my two talents are so um, like close together and complementary of one another. And I think that, you know, I think I was kind of known, especially in singles, I was always known as a very musical skater. Like people would kind of use that word to describe me. And I don't really know what it means exactly, but I think it might be that, that I could really just, I just, I don't know, maybe heard music in a slightly different way than, you know, the other skaters. And maybe it, uh, I just felt it a little bit different and it kind of came across through my skating a little bit more. So back in the nineties, Figure skating had the, um, I don't know what they call it, but it was the the scoring up to six. Yes, the 6.0 system. Yeah, and uh, working around the rink and talking to the coaches, you'd hear stories about even though there were a lot of gay skaters, there weren't any that were really out. And a lot, mm -hmm. what I was told, and I don't know if you've heard this or if it was just a California, U.S. thing or it was sort of international, but... I always heard that the reason why is because the judging was set up to, you could easily penalize someone who was, who was out or effeminate. Oh, I, I, for sure. I am, I imagine like back then, um, you know, it was, there was no, um, e there was even less sort of concrete quantifiable uh, marking system. You know, whereas today, like you have a, an element that's worth a certain amount of points and, to, you know, there's nothing the judge can do to change that. Whereas back then, if you did a triple axel and somebody else didn't, but the other skater was known to have better artistic, they could still beat you, even though you were doing something they couldn't do. So I think that a lot of that, you know, uh, is how the judges perceive you and um, that sort of character that you developed when you were out on the ice and you know coming out especially 
when it was even less accepted in in society in general back then than I think it is now, you know, it would be first of all terrifying and probably I'd say not worth it because you it could be risking your entire career. Yeah. The rink I worked at was in San Jose. It's where Rudy Galindo was practicing when he won the U.S. Nationals. Oh, cool. And so um, just him being able to be out and win was a big deal for our city, for the skaters. And so I, I can imagine how the, the judging system, even though it was still then, because it didn't change until 2002, I believe, right? Right. And that was when they had the whole scandal, the scandal <laughs> at the Olympics. So the the new system, though, is something that makes it more competitive than you think and more of a, an accurate system? I, I think it's it's not perfect, but I do think that it's more accurate and it gives the skaters more control over their results. You know, a, a skater like uh, Nathan Chen that, you know, within like a year kind of like really catapulted onto the scene because he could do things that other skaters couldn't. And back then, even if you did, like you would have Chinese skaters doing two quads and you had Timothy Goebel doing three quads, but he still couldn't beat a skater in front of him only doing one because it was just kind of, you know, perceived by the judges and in the skating community that, oh, he wasn't an artistic skater. He's, he doesn't skate like, you know, Plashenko and Yagudin did. And so in this way, like, I, I feel that it is more balanced and you're always going to get that uh, argument of uh, technical versus artistic. But I mean, for me, a sport is when you can jump higher, run faster, you can you achieve something physically that somebody else can't. And if I think that, you know, in the sport of figure skating, if it's going to be a sport and it's going to be at the Olympics, that that technical aspect should be a, a little bit more important than the artistic to ensure that it doesn't just become wholly subjective. When you were starting to realize yourself that you were gay and it was still the old scoring system, was there a fear with how you would be perceived in figure skating or was that even not a concern because you were more dealing with, you know, real life and, you know, how your family would, would think about it or, or, you know, what? Yeah, I, you're, you're exactly right. When, you know, when I was um, learning to accept myself in the very beginning, you know, as being gay, because for the longest time, I just, I tried to fight it. And I promised myself that I would never, you know, be a gay man. And I would just never tell anybody and I would just hide it forever. So when it came to skating, I just kind of thought the same thing. I was like, well, I don't have to tell anybody in skating, like there's no need for it. So I just never would, you know what I mean? So it wasn't like, I even had the idea in my head that my sexuality would ever play into my skating career. So as you um, move through, you know, you're getting better, you're practicing more, you start to move through, um, I guess you change coaches, right? You. So, yeah, I mean, from, I moved away from home when I was 13 and I lived in a, a, a slightly larger town in Northern Ontario. But uh, each year I would kind of find myself always just wanting more, wanting 
more competitions, a more competitive environment, uh, higher level coaching. And I ended up moving every year of high school. So I went to, I moved, I lived in a different city. I went to a different high school from grade nine to grade 12. And um, I kind of eventually uh, ended up in Montreal with my coach, Paul Wirtz. And I think that he was the coach that I kind of owe the most to for, for turning me into and helping me become the skater that I am now, even now. Um, and also not just uh, the technically, like he got me all of my triple jumps, but you know, I think that he could tell that I was gay before I even really knew it myself. And he really kind of took me under his wing and he said, you know, you are going to be a sort of, like you're going to be a classical type of skater. Like that was going to be my style. You know, he told me that's what it was going to be. And he said, I want you to just own it. Like, you know, don't try to be something else. That's just what you are. And he was that f the very first person that ever kind of talked to me that way and kind of, um, you know, in that term of just trying to like be myself, you know, I was still kind of uh, fighting within myself when it came to my sexuality at that point. So he was definitely an integral person in, in more ways than one in my, uh, in my life and in my skating career. When um, was he, he was after Brian Orser then, or was he before? He was, that was before. When you went to Brian Orser, like for me, I'm, a, I'm an Olympic nut. So <laughs> yeah, I remember, obviously I'm a little older than you. So I remember 84, 80, 84. I remember 84, but 88 obviously was the battle of the Bryans. And in the U.S. even, that was figure skating, you know, had a full week of coverage where Brian Boitano and Brian Orser were able to compete. Um, and so for you to go into a sport and you go to Brian Orser as your coach, was it like exciting for you to have him as a coach or was it just more, you know, it's the new coach, so it's not that different? I mean, Brian has an, an incredible energy and I think that he probably had that before he was famous and well-known in figure skating. But of course, he's one of those really recognizable people. So when we first started working with him and there, I, I mean, I always treated all my coaches with a lot of respect, but there was like a little extra level of kind of, you know, that, uh, being a little starstruck, you know, it's just like, wow, like I'm, this legend is now coaching me and it's just so cool. But I mean, all of that kind of fades away and you kind of get into that daily, that day in, day out, like working, you know, oh, and yeah. um, all of that kind of melts away. And it's just about, you know, him coaching us and making us the best that we could be. Um, You've had four, was it four pairs partners? Yes. You first made it to the Olympics, though, with your current one, correct? Yes. What got you to that point? What, like, I'm, it's probably different reasons, like why you change partners, either moving away, like you okay. said, or yeah, yeah. Um. So when I I first started skating, okay, my first partner was uh, Sarah, who we've we've talked about a little bit, and then I. I got to a little bit of a crossroads where I was still competing singles. Like I, I won junior singles and novice pairs in the same season. 
And then the following year, I did junior pairs in senior men. And I always promised myself that I wanted to give everything I had and go as far as I possibly could in my singles career so that I had no regrets if I ever stopped and only did pairs. And to know that, you know, I really pushed myself as far as I could. And and I did. You know, I got to that that point where I was working on the triple axle and the quad. And they weren't going to be something that I could do consistently. And at that time, that's what you needed in order to be the best in the world. And that's what I wanted. I didn't want to just make it to nationals. I, I wanted to go to the world championships and make it to the Olympics. And uh, it became clear that that was going to happen in pairs and not in singles. So after that last season of singles is when I started skating with uh, my partner, Rachel, and we made it pretty far. We did uh, se- some senior international events. Uh, we did a senior Grand Prix event, Skate Canada. Um, and I mean, in the same way in singles, I realized that that wasn't going to be the avenue that was going to get me to where I wanted to go. I realized that with Rachel, it was the same thing, that... I wasn't in the right situation to get me where I wanted to go in my skating career. And I guess it's like a, a relationship, you know, if, if if it's not right, you can't just stay in it. And like a relationship, it was really, really difficult to end it and move on. It was uh, never easy uh, with any of the partner breakups, but I, uh, I I had to do what I needed to do to get to where I wanted to go. So then how do you finally find Megan? So I was training in Toronto with uh, Megan and, oh no, sorry. I was training in Toronto. I was training in Toronto with Rachel and we were kind of searching for a full-time Paris coach. Um, We were working part-time with Brian and with Ingo Steuer and um, we just felt that we needed somebody who was a, like a, an actual Paris coach, like Ingo, more full time. And so, of course, uh, Richard Gauthier's name came up and I uh, called him. We went out, we went kind of did a tryout with him. And um, Megan was already skating there with her previous partner, Craig. And, you know, when the time came and everything had run its course and both uh, me and Megan didn't make it to the Olympics in 2010. We were already there in the same rink, and it was our coaches who, you know, saw us and were like, you know what, I think that they could skate together. Different coaches put you together. Is how do you guys work then the coach relationship with the skaters? Do you do they share duties or? Um. So a- around the world right now, a lot of like the best training centers have like a team of coaches, and. Uh, you know, one of our coaches was Bruno uh, Marcotte, who is now Megan's husband, and Richard Gauthier. And they were, you know, they were a team uh, before I even got to Montreal. And uh, it was in both of them, you know, where they both had the same idea of me and Megan skating together. Okay. And then so you skate for how long before you get to, I guess you guys decide the... Olympic teams by national championships as well, or do you guys do it differently? Yes. So in 2010, uh, there was two spots for the Olympics that year. Megan came third. I was in eighth place. And, you know, after that, we were both, of course, I was really disappointed that I, I didn't make it. And Megan was, of course, 
probably even more so because she was just one spot away. She was the alternate for the Olympics. And um, we both took a little bit of uh, a vacation after that. And then it was during that vacation. Um, oh, and Megan had to compete at the Four Continents after that. And then after that, we took some time. And that was when we did our very first tryout. So then once you guys go to 2014 Olympics in, where was 2014? Sochi. Sochi. Um, you guys go to the national championships in, and usually it's what, like a month or two before the Olympics? Yeah, well, it's like a month, yeah. How does that process work? Because, I mean, I guess you just enter as a team and... The best scores win. Yeah. Um, there's no politics being played or? Um, so, I mean, like, first of all, when Megan and I first started, it became apparent to both of us very quickly that we could be, we could be really good. I remember the very first time I threw Megan, she just landed, like, really easily. We did a throw triple sow cow. We did a throw triple loop that very first day. And then by the end of the week, we could do all the throw triples, sow, loop, and the LUTs. And that was always a struggle for me with my other partners. And it just changed how I saw my own potential. I was like, wow, like I, I could see all of my dreams starting to really become a lot more reachable and attainable. And so, you know, we, our first year at nationals, we were second in our, in Canada but we made our first world team. And then the following year, we became Canadian champions. The following year, we were we won our first world medal. We came third at the world championships the year before the Olympics. And, and like slowly, this dream we both had of making it to the Olympics slowly became, wow, like maybe we could win an Olympic medal. You know, we were third heading into the Olympics and everything everything changed it was really interesting how that happened because you know my dreams got bigger instead of just going to the olympics it became well maybe i can win a win a medal and um when that uh, that season came around um you know it was always a, a good fight at nationals there was another amazing canadian team dylan moscovich and kirsten moore towers um nationals was always like a big fight but uh you know, we uh, entered, we went into the Olympics as Canadian champions. And that first Olympic experience was just so, so like big, you know, when we arrived, it, I felt like a little kid in a candy store. Everywhere I looked, everything was like new and exciting. And I couldn't believe we were there. And I think as tends to happen in people's first Olympic experiences, it didn't go as well as we wanted it to when it came to when it came to our performances. Um, it was really cool because that was the first year that they had the team event and we got to stand on the podium and I got to bring a medal home. And that's, you know, that was really amazing. But I think because we didn't have the skate we wanted, it left the door open for us and kind of leaving us wanting more in terms of deciding to keep on going and maybe potentially pursue, you know, an, another Olympics after that. How was that moment though, walking into the stadium for the opening ceremonies? I imagine from there on, it just is a blur. You're absolutely right. Like the, the, the funny thing is, is that when you watch the Olympics on TV, it 
in a way it actually feels bigger than if you were there in the stadium. Um, it's kind of funny. I'm sure it's probably like that with like all the award shows too. Like if you're sitting in the audience at the Oscars, it's like, oh, this isn't such a big deal. But when you watch it on TV, you almost get a sense that everybody else is watching it. It feels like the whole world is watching it and it, it seems bigger in your own mind than it actually is. But it really was just so cool to be surrounded by the Canadian team, be with some of my best friends in the world and then like walk into that stadium yeah, the the first Olympics compared to the second one, it's very interesting to look back and realize just how, in a way, how unprepared I was for the first one. Like, going in, I had an idea that I really wanted to just, you know, keep myself and keep me and Megan to keep ourselves in our own little bubble and just concentrate on ourselves. But being there for the first time was just so kind of overwhelming and so stimulating that I just couldn't help but feel like a kid in a candy store just like looking around at everything with like my eyes so big um and I think that that kind of led to us not having uh the performance that we wanted to have in Sochi and you know by the end of it I think that we were left kind of wanting more from our careers and wanting it like uh probably another chance to have the type of skate we really wanted to have at the Olympics you know, it, before the team event, figure skating was more of like one week, wasn't it? And then it was done. Yeah. yeah. Didn't team, the team event, didn't that add just like a second a week? So you're like on the ice like every day, it seems like. Yeah, the, the schedule is really intense. And when they first introduced the team event, uh, everybody assumed that it would be at the end of all of the skating events that everybody would have their individual events and then there would be the team event, but they decided to put it at the beginning. Um, and uh, luckily we were able to share the skates. Sorry, luckily we were, we were able to share the skates with other teammates. So you're able to swap in another man to do the short versus, uh, and then a different one to do the long or, in our case, we did the short program in that team event, and Kirsten and Dylan did the, the the long. But for the pairs, it was the most intense because I think we competed uh, Friday, Saturday, and then our individual event was on the Monday. So we had like one day to kind of get ourselves back together after winning the silver medal and then kind of uh, reset and go into our individual event. So then going to the closing ceremonies that year, you said you wanted you were wanting more for your career, obviously. So, do you see that at the time as possibly your last chance there, or do you know that you'll be back and it's not as sad? At the end of Sochi, I was left feeling kind of numb because I mean I had a silver medal, which was really amazing, and that that whole experience and all of those memories are just wonderful but then I had like that bitter disappointment of ending up seventh in our individual event and just not having the skate that we wanted so they both kind of like canceled each other out and I was just kind of left feeling a little blah um I mean the rest of the Olympics was so much fun and going to see the other sports and just you know taking in all of that amazing energy was was really cool and Megan and I we didn't talk a lot before the Olympics about what was going to happen after um and then eventually when we did, we're like, you know what, we'll, we'll do one more year. And if it goes well, then we'll see how it goes. And we'll just take the next four years year by year. Like we never sat down and we're like, okay, 
we're doing another Olympics, four more years, let's go. We were like, okay, we'll do one, see how it goes, and then we'll make our decision from there. And then in, is it 2015 you come out? Uh, yeah, it was December 2014. Okay. Now, is that something, and it's your decision, it's your story, but is that something that you talk with your your teammate about and your coaches, or is that? You know what? I I actually didn't tell anybody. I didn't even really tell my parents that I was going to, you know, uh, come out publicly. And when I initially talked to when I told my story to Sid and out sports, like it was really just to share my story in hopes of being able to help young kids that were struggling, you know, with their, with themselves, with their sexuality and whether that was within a sport or not. Um, I didn't, I feel like now when I look back, maybe I should have given it a little bit more thought, but um, yeah, I, uh, once I made that decision and I, I told my story and, then everything just kind of snowballed and it was uh, just a, a, an amazing, um, I guess an amazing process in a way. So when you go back to practicing after you come out, do you feel like a weight's been lifted off or do you feel any type of like freedom? Yes, definitely. And that actually surprised me as after coming out how I felt when I was on the ice and literally like you just explained it, I could, it was like a, a bunch of, uh, like bricks kind of lifting off my shoulder. And I felt like I could just, it's like when you, it's like when you come out, but just like at home, like within your family, you, you feel lighter because you're just more yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I felt pretty much like I was out to my, my friends and family. So I was very comfortable around them and comfortable in my, in my own skin. But it translated even more to the ice when I came out publicly because I had nothing left to hide for anybody else, you know, in the public. And um, I do remember, you know, that season, we had an undefeated season, but I remember just feeling so free and way more expressive while I was on the ice and more connected to Megan because I wasn't trying to pretend to be something that I wasn't. And so when do you meet Louise? I met Louise uh, that summer, so the summer of 2015, just after I had won my first world title. Was he also training at your rink, or...? So Louise trained with the Ice Dancers in uh, the other part of uh, Montreal here. And um, yeah, so I was at the Paris School, and he was at the uh, Ice Dance School. How, you know, you, you come out in... 2014 you find louise in 2015 um it just seemed like it happened fast for you is (laughs) so i was in a i was in a a a five-year relationship as i went through that process of making my first olympics and when that relationship ended i kind of promised myself that i wasn't going to get into another relationship until i was done my skating career like it was trying to train while you're going through a breakup and go to competitions. Like it was almost too much for me to handle. And I was like, I just don't want to have to deal with it. So I'm not, I don't want to like, I don't want anything serious over the next four years. Um, And I guess that's just the way the universe works when you're not looking for it, it finds you. And that's, you know, I 
met Luis over dinner. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't really looking for anything. And I even, <laughs> I still tell my friends this, I find it funny because I always said I would never date another skater. And I never really dated anybody younger than me before. And of course, Luis is younger than me and he's a skater, <laughs> um, which kind of just makes me chuckle again. It's like the way the universe works of bringing you what you're, you're not looking for when you're not looking for it. Um, but uh, it, I quickly realized that dating another skater, it kind of makes sense because they just get your life. You know, you don't need to explain why I got to fly to Japan for three weeks or why I need to go to Germany for two weeks or, you know, being gone for a week every month at a competition. That's, you know, he, he just got that that's what I needed to do to get to where I wanted to go. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. To when do you and Megan decide that you know you're gonna go for the 2018 Olympics? Um, so I mean, we had that amazing undefeated season, 2014, 2015. We only lost one competition the next season. Um, so that brought us all the way to when we won our second world title in 2016. And then when there's only two seasons left, you're like, uh, oh, well, we might as well just keep going, you know to get to the next Olympics. And especially with everything going so well up until that point, you know, you're starting to think, oh, well, you know, if things keep on going the way they are and we can keep on improving, then when we finally get to the next Olympics, it's gonna be a totally different type of game than it was at the first one where we'll definitely be in the hunt for a medal. Well, yeah, and then also I'd imagine that the, um the start of the Olympic season for you is probably in the summer. Is that when you're like choosing music and starting to plan what you're going to do for that season? Yes, exactly. It's always, it's actually even in the spring where uh, we'll start listening for music ideas. And Megan and I would always try and get one program done before we would take our summer vacation, which was usually in July. So yeah, you're, you're already starting to think of what's coming up at the end of the season before okay yeah so what that's spring of 2017 you're starting to do winter olympic 2018 training right um, and how is that year did was that year any different going into it than the previous or so yeah i mean i uh 2000 the the season after you know, everything was going so well. We, we won Worlds 2015. We won again in 2016. And then that following season, we just struggled. And part of it was just, like, after winning two years in a row, it's like, okay, well, how do you, how do you win again? You know, like, the, the motivation is, it's different. And trying to stay original uh, with our, like, our program ideas and trying to improve, it becomes... You know, that th that's the saying, it's so much easier to be chasing someone ahead of you rather than being chased. And I think that season, we just, we struggled a lot and that led to me injuring my back. I ended up uh, herniating a disc in my back uh, like the day before the short program at the World Champions Championships that year. Um, so we had a really rough world. We were feeling really, really down. Um, that summer was a huge struggle dealing with, uh, you know, getting healthy again. We made a coaching change. It's the Olympic season coming up. Um, 
like in my personal life, uh, Luis and I had just uh, moved into a new apartment and we were like painting and renovating. And it was all like this sort of perfect storm where it all came together and I kind of had like a, a breakdown at the end of the summer and it took a while it took a while to kind of uh heal from that and then at the same time get back into uh get back into competitive shape while dealing with my back injury when did you just start to feel right and ready for 2018 our first sort of glimpse of hope was the short program at the Autumn Classic International, which was in, uh, was here actually, um, close to Montreal, up in Pierrefonds. And we did our short, uh, we skated really well. Our, you know, our, our PCS, our component score was really high. Our technical score was high. And it was just like, oh, we're still good. We still have potential. We can still do this. Um, we had a horrible long the next day, so we did have more work to do, but it wasn't up until then where it was like, ah, okay, you know what, um, you know, we, we were, we're still good skaters, we can still be competitive, we can still aim for the podium this year. And then so you uh, perform at Canadian Nationals, um, what spot did you finish in? Let's see. At nationals? Yeah. Uh, we won. Okay. Yeah. Um, we... So you win that. You have to be feeling good. You go to the Olympics again. I imagine you're able to enjoy it a lot more. How, um, how do you compare 2014, 2018? Just the Olympic village, the Olympic moment, not even the skating portion. Because like I said, I'm a big Olympic nut. So I can't imagine doing that. Um but I imagine the second time around, you feel just you're able to absorb more. Again, you are absolutely right. Um, from the moment Megan and I got off the plane in Korea, it was a totally different feeling from Sochi. Um, I felt calmer, more comfortable. I, I wasn't as distracted by anything. I, I almost felt like like when I was in Russia, it made me feel so far from home. But then being in Korea, I almost felt like that same sort of calm energy you have while you're at home, that calm and that calm and uh, comfortable feeling you have when you're at, at home. And I mean, we couldn't have been in a better place to allow ourselves to have our best skate. And it's something that we could just feel and we, we just knew. And every practice, we had amazing practices the entire time. It was just one of those, like the whole uh, week and a half from the moment we arrived to the moment that we did that final long program, individual long program. It just, it went like you, it went like you planned for it to go. It went like how we trained for it to go and it went how we hoped for it to go. And it doesn't always happen in, in any sport. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter how prepared you are, the ice is always slippery and anything can happen. But I don't think I've ever felt more prepared for any competition in my entire life than I did for those Olympics. And you had a successful two weeks. I mean, a gold and a bronze. Yeah, um, it wasn't it wasn't bad. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. So you're able to, and then what, after the Olympics, you just, uh, you retire, right? Is it how, 
how easy was it to come to that decision to retire? <laughs> it was super easy. Oh, was uh, it? Yeah, both Megan and I, we knew that the Olympics would be our last uh, competition, as long as everything went well. If it went really bad, we were probably going to go to the world championships to try and end it on a better note. But uh, yeah, we knew at the beginning of that season, really, that you know we had accomplished everything that we've wanted to in the sport and more um, physically, it was becoming exponentially more difficult every season and we're just ready to start trying new things you know like you the fire in my heart to like be the best it wasn't as it wasn't burning as strong as it was at the beginning you know of when I first started skating with Megan yeah and then for you you have your music um you're modeling now so I imagine you have something that easily takes that place um, I wouldn't say that it easily takes that place. And um, it's something that I've been talking about lately with, with my friends is sort of, um, you know, there's a whole sort of identity and, it, you know, I skated for 25 years and it was my sole purpose and my sole goal was every day to make it to the Olympics, be better than I was the day before, become the best athlete I can possibly be. And so much of like your entire identity is all rolled up into that. And then you do your last competition and, you know, Megan and I were really busy. Like we went to Australia, we had to shows in Japan, shows in Korea. We didn't have a whole lot of time to kind of just sit there and ponder, okay, what's next? What are we going to do? Like we were very, very busy. And a lot of it was very, very exciting. But at the same time, you know, when I'm working on a, mu a musical project, I'm I'm not a film composer yet. Like that that wouldn't be something that I could call myself. And I'm not a full-time skating coach because I, you know, Megan and I have done a lot of seminars, but it's not like I have my own students. And so I don't really have that that same uh depth of identity that I had as, you know, an Olympic athlete, as an Olympic figure skater. And it's something that, you know, I've realized I just need to take a deep breath and just kind of keep going and trying different things and, you know, working on new uh, musical projects and stuff. And eventually I will probably find it, but it is a, you know, change is always exciting and terrifying at the same time. What do you see yourself as in like five years? Do you want to be a, a figure skating coach or do you want to be a composer? Do you want to do a little <laughs> bit of both? I I would, I, I don't even, I don't even really know. I mean, I think, Ideally, I would love to be a composer. You know, I music is there's still such a huge world of music that I feel like I've only like dipped my toe into. And I I'm just so excited to see how far I can go. And if I really apply myself into music the way I did in skating, like what can I accomplish? And of course, I will always have a, a foot in the door of skating as well, whether it's as a coach as a choreographer, whether it's composing music for other skaters. Which you've done before. Yes, or, um, or maybe it's with uh, an, in a more official position as a technical specialist or uh, through Skate Canada or the International Skating Union, so. Which today, by the way, I saw that you are running for position with ISU. Yes, I am, I'm running for the Athletes Commission. What does that do? Um, so you're basically the voice of the athletes on the ISU. So when they're making new rules or changing the way competitions are, it's like 
I would sit in on those councils and on those meetings and kind of be like, well, this is how the athletes feel. This is what they want. Um, this is what they don't want. Oh, okay. So you definitely have to have a, a close relationship then with skaters. Yes. So that going forward, you know, that's going to be the case for you. Yes. And, but I mean, I don't have that position yet. It's, um, it's an elected position. So I'll be going to the world championships to kind of campaign and there's a vote. All of the athletes that compete at the world championships, uh, vote, uh, which candidate they want. And then it's announced at the end of the world championships. Well, cool. Good luck to, to you for that. Yeah. Thank you. You get that position. Well, we'll get ready to wrap up. Um, I'm going to do this thing each episode where I do 20 questions. Okay. They're a little pop culture, a little fun, um, just some random. Then there's uh, Inside the Actor Studio is a TV show in the U.S. Um, James Lipton is the host, and yeah. he asked these same questions. So it's a little oh. bit of that, a little pop okay. culture. Uh, what's your first celebrity crush? Elizabeth Shue. Okay. Um, do you listen to podcasts? Do you have a favorite podcast? Um, I haven't gotten, no, I haven't gotten into podcasts yet, but oh, my, my circle of friends is, they are all about it. So I really need to get my act together and start listening to some. Um, if you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Wow. Mozart. Okay. We have the same birthday. I'd love to just talk to him and pick his brain. Yeah, I'd imagine how it'd be perfect for you. Um, who inspires you? Um, it's really difficult for me to choose just one person. And I, I feel like it's the Olympic athlete that inspires me the most. Um, and like the, the obstacles, um, the amount of talent, the amount of dedication and hard work. And it's not like we're professional athletes where it's like, okay, I'm going to go out and do my job and I know that I've got, you know, multi-million dollars coming in that's going to make it all worth it. You know, for an Olympic athlete, it could just be for that moment of, you know, doing your best on the world stage. And maybe that moment is, you know, a seventh or an eighth or a 15th place finish, but you still put so much of your life into that moment and it has so much value and, I don't know. I just, I would have to answer by saying the Olympic athlete. That works. Uh, what's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? Um, it's very interesting that the second case of uh, somebody with AIDS being completely cured. Yeah, that has been interesting to read for sure. Um, what's the most uh, recent streaming obsession? If you binge watch TV, what what have you been watching? Uh, sex Education. Is that on Netflix? It's on Netflix, and it's amazing and hilarious, and I recommend it to everybody. That's with um, oh, what is her name? Jillian Anderson. Next? Yes, that was an amazing series. I can't wait for season two. Yeah, so good. Um, what fictional character would you like to meet in real life? Um, wow, that's such a good question. I would have to say, I think, like, Gandalf <laughs> from The Lord <laughs> right. of the Rings. Like, just, he's so wise, and he's, like, seen and been a part of so much. It would just be amazing to talk to him. Cool. Um, if animals could talk, which animal would be the most annoying? <laughs> um, the seagull. 
Then. I guess. Or maybe the ferrets. I can imagine them being super annoying. <laughs> um, do you have a personal hero? If so, who? Um, I mean, Kurt Browning and Elvis Stoiko were my heroes growing up. And even now, I've I've done shows with them and they're just really incredible people in each their in very different ways, but even though I'm taller than them, I still look <laughs> up to them. All right. Um, we'll move to the inside the actor studio questions. What is your favorite word? My favorite word is it's not even I don't even know if it's a real world, a real word. It's in the Urban Dictionary, but it's the word fontrum. And it's when you feel so embarrassed for somebody else that you like you almost just like you're so embarrassed for them. Um, like when somebody's singing really bad, but they think they're really good and you're just like, oh boy. And you feel embarrassed, even though you're not the one up on stage, like you are feeling a lot of fontrum for them. All right. What's your least favorite word? <laughs> I don't know. Something weird like jazzercise or <laughs> something like that, I guess. All right. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, I guess... What turns me on spiritually, creatively, or what was the other one? Or emotionally? Um, maybe it sounds really corny, but like empathy. Okay. Having the ability to just put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And I just feel like it's something that if more people did more often, I'm sure everything would be a lot better than it is. Yeah, that's true. Uh, what turns you off? Um, close-mindedness. Um, what is your favorite curse word? <laughs> uh, do you want me to say it out loud? Yeah, go for it. I'd say shit. Okay. Um, what sound or noise do you love? Sound or noise? Rain. When you're when you're outside, like on a, a balcony or something, and it's raining, you can hear it hitting the either the window or the roof. What sound or noise do you hate? Snoring. Um, what what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? A cosmologist. Nice. What profession would you not want to do? Profession would I not want to do? Hmm. I. I think I would have a hard time being like a waiter okay. or a waitress. I, not that it's a bad job. Just for me, I would have a lot of anxiety of like dealing with that many people and trying to be like happy and on all the time. And then, you know, if they didn't like your service, like it would hurt my feelings. Like I, I'm, I guess I'm too sensitive to do that. Oh yeah, totally. It makes sense. It's a hard job and you have to yeah. deal with some hard people sometimes. Yeah. Um, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Would you like a drink? Uh, the final question is, um, one of the reasons why I do this podcast is I want young people to hear it, and I want them to know that um, they're not alone. They have, hopefully, friends and family that support them, but they also have athletes who have been out before that had to come out, um, and that they have people that have dealt with the same thing. So uh, my question to you is, if you could tell some 12-year-old boy or girl who might be struggling with their sexuality, if you could tell them one thing to make it easier for them, what would it be? 
don't be afraid to be yourself. And that I think that, you know, as, um, as they get older, um, it'll become more clear that, you know, just being yourself is one of the most important and best things that you can do in your life. And, you know, to understand that maybe that's not going to, you know, not everybody's going to love you the way our, you know what I mean? Like not, <laughs> nobody is universally loved and maybe you're going to have fights with people or maybe people aren't going to like love the way you present yourself, but it doesn't matter because if you love yourself, then you have everything you need. Perfect. Cool. Thank you. Um, thank you, Eric, so much for coming on. And oh, thank you. I hope, uh, I hope that it, <laughs> I hope it was okay. No, you were great. Eric for being a guest on my podcast. He is a great storyteller and I had a great time talking with him. Tune in next episode when my guest is Kate Ramon. Hope you all come back. Thank you.